This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. There's some heavy material this week. It is probably not suitable for children and possibly not for people who have histories of abuse in their own life. I also will not be doing a listener question because this is a long episode. It's also an episode that took a long time to finish, mainly because of scheduling the multiple participants. But man, I am so glad that it's here. I have been so excited to share this one with you guys. Here's how it's going to go. First, we're going to hear from Howard. Howard is a 63-year-old man who is kind of iffy on therapy in general. We're going to hear him out, and then we're going to switch over to our main interview with my close friend, Jonathan, who not only is in therapy, but has found it so helpful that he is now in school for his master's to become a therapist himself. After that, we're going to go back to Howard. We're going to get some follow-up responses from him. And we're going to see if anything that Jonathan and I said moved the needle, so to speak, on this issue for him. Now, if you had to guess, 
solely based on age, Jonathan is about my age, early 30s, what would you think the difference was between Howard and Jonathan? According to data from the Barna Group, people in Jonathan and I's generational cohort, that is millennials, as difficult as it might be sometimes for me to say that, millennials are two and a half times as likely to be in counseling as those in Howard's cohort, that is baby boomers. Now, I can't find any hard data on this. I looked, but I would imagine that in some Christian circles, boomers are even less open to therapy than in the general population, whereas uh, millennials, Christian or non, seem to be pretty open to it. I did find, however, a Christianity Today article that showed a significant gap between, on the one hand, the high percentage of pastors who believe in therapy and actively refer their congregants to therapists, and on the other hand, the low percentage who actually talk about therapy regularly from the pulpit or otherwise. So maybe in mainstream American churches, there's a thing that's going on where pastors and congregants are engaged in therapy and therapy referral, but it's not really done out in the open. Either way, let's dive into my chat with Howard and see what exactly he's not so sure about. Is therapy prescribed too often these days? You know, I, I don't have any factual data, obviously, to back up what I'm saying. I'm just a perception deal. My gut feeling is that that it is. I think it is. Uh, when somebody goes to, uh, to talk with a counselor regardless of what the deal is, I'm guessing that one of the things the counselor might do is say, let's turn our phones off. <laughs> I yeah. don't know that. But I wonder if we would just do that with each other once in a while. Maybe we would accomplish many good things. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Do you see a connection between maybe the overprescription of therapy and the overprescription of maybe mental health drugs, Ritalin, antidepressants? Is it part of a, just a larger overprescriptive culture in your mind? I, I believe it is. You know, we can blame it on a number of things, um, but it really comes down to individual choices by us as individuals, uh, by it could be family members, you know, putting pressure on someone. Or so. I imagine that some people, though, would maybe have an opposite view. They would say things like psychotherapy are better interventions than, you know, narcotics or other drugs or whatever. But in your mind, it, it seems to be a bit more kind of part of the same culture of just going to specialists, going to doctors too too much and going to community or, or possibly the Bible too little. And this is a very, um, again, a very simplistic answer, I guess. I do believe that for most of the issues that we face, we, we can find some guidance in the Bible if we look for it. It doesn't mean that we always individually may be able to find it ourselves or understand it completely ourselves. And, uh, you know, we all know that there, there can be 50 different interpretations on a passage of Scripture. But I do believe that, that when we are um, in a situation where we feel like we need counsel, that I, I believe true wisdom is really only found in God's direction. In, in the Bible, the Scriptures, uh, that if we, if we give counsel void of that, I'm not saying it's all bad, but I think in the long run, we're, we need the wisdom that is found in the Bible. 
What if someone were to say, and I don't have any basis for this, but I, I could imagine a Christian who is also a therapist saying, yeah, I mean, psychotherapy is based on Christian principles. It's based on loving your neighbor as yourself. But unless you actually can love yourself, you can't love your neighbor. How would you respond to that? I would have to be honest and say, you know what, I don't have the experience uh, dealing specifically with, with someone who practices in the field. I've spoken with uh, a young man who I didn't realize he had gone to counseling in the last couple of years, and he had for a couple of different reasons. And this is a young man that I trust very deeply and hold in high esteem. I guess my my kind of general thing is that we have to be very careful that we don't put too much emphasis on on relying on counseling outside of the Word of God. Ordinarily, if you found out that somebody had been in counseling for a couple of years or whatever, what? How would that change your perception of them? In situations like that, I try, I try to check myself in the sense that be careful not to judge the other person because you haven't walked in their shoes. I'm probably guilty of this too. I know that sometimes people just want you to listen. They they come to you, and sometimes are are especially if we if we tend towards being people who look for solutions. Sometimes we overpower the conversation and start giving solutions before we actually even hear the person in their heart. So I hope that I would get want to get to know the person and listen and get a better feel for the, for the journey that took them to where they felt like they needed to. What types of intervention should be attempted before resorting to therapy in your mind? The, the fact that I've never been a part of a counseling session in that sense. But, you know, I, I think it's important that every individual has has someone they can talk to and listen and they can listen to them, that they can interact and they can be honest with. And that's a tough thing. And I don't know if it's any tougher now than it ever was, but I do think it's very tough for individuals to feel like they have 100% confidentiality. I think sometimes that the, the counselor's office may be that the person feels like, hey, I can go to someone and it's going to be behind closed doors and they've been trained and they know the importance of of keeping it totally confidential, whatever it is. So if someone, if one of the things someone is looking for is that confidentiality, do you see that as fundamentally, that's, it's unfortunate that they would have to seek that in a counselor. It would be better if they could find that in a friend or a family member or a pastor or do you think of that as, no, that's, that's a perfectly good role for a counselor to play in modern society? It, it may very well be in modern society. Do you think that counseling the way it's done now, do you think that there is a biblical precedent for that? Is that in the Bible somewhere? Or do you think of it as a newer invention added on to the culture of the Bible or the early church? I don't think counseling itself is anything new. I think I think the label we put on it may be different. My biggest concern would be that we leave out scriptural guidance that is obviously there. I, I guess I would. I've only taken one psychology course. That was one. That was enough for me. <laughs> that was all I wanted. Yeah. Uh, the quote unquote experts. Mm-hmm. Okay. I. I just have questions sometimes about the the foundational principles from which they operate. And so if the foundational principles are questionable, then I, I, I'm, a, I'm a little 
Admittedly, I'm a little, a little suspicious. What do you think someone learns if they study counseling for three years and emerge with a master's? I would assume that they would they would have uh, an abundant amount of training or practice through their classes of of learning to listen to people, depending on what they're trying to get out of their session, identify where that person is and help them to identify the things that they need to identify. That sounds pretty and, good to me. Does it but I mean that's that's very that's a very simplistic answer. That's a safe answer. <laughs> <laughs> I'll allow safe answers. What are examples of situations where you think, no question, you should go to therapy for that? If this has happened to you, therapy is clearly the right move. I don't know that I've got an answer for that. I still start with the fact that I have to be very careful because one individual sitting next to me may may be able to respond in a scenario like that, you know, that, that I might not necessarily understand. We've all seen people who could act like one person on one day and a totally different person on another day. And then we're told that, hey, if he or she is not on their medication, this is what happens. I don't understand all of that. And uh, I would imagine that it may be necessary for them to talk to someone, whether it's a friend who is very, very understanding and very trustworthy, or someone who has the experience of whatever this illness or whatever it is. And I could see that being someone who has training in how to deal with certain people. Let's say your brother calls you tomorrow or one of your kids calls you tomorrow and says, dad, I've decided to start counseling. I'm going to a marriage family therapist or whatever kind of a counselor. What is your first thought before you're able to check yourself? And then what is your second or third thought? My first thought is probably, honestly, nobody's in the room with me, so I can say it, is, oh, no, what did I do wrong? <laughs> That's my first thought as a parent or a brother or a, or a husband or whatever. Hopefully, my next response would be to say, okay, pray that whatever is that needs to be solved or there's guidance, that, that it will be found. And then, and then do my best to be a, a friend or there. You know, if it's my if it's my child, the parent inside you always says, "Isn't this, isn't this something we can talk about?" The question comes: When I was their age and my parents were my age, would I have done that? Would I have confided in my parents? Would I have would I have gone to them? And and I look back, and sometimes I did, and sometimes I did. So I'm hoping that that I would respond in a positive way and say, maybe say nothing. But not give a negative reaction. That's, I would not want to do that. Is there a worry that there are counselors operating who claim to be Christians, who are counseling couples, married couples, and despite the fact that these counselors claim to be Christians, they appear to be not encouraging couples to stay together? I would hope that if I were in the counselor's shoes, I would ask enough about the family. When both of my daughters... We're going to get married. I had specific conversations with each of those young men. And as a father, when things are going wrong, if things go wrong, if there are, if there are hurts, you always want to be able to have an opportunity to be a part of a solution or at least part of the conversation. 
a possible worry is going straight to therapy circumvents this familial track. Exactly. If I were the Christian therapist, I hope that I would remember those things and say, okay, you're a fairly young couple. You've only been married 15, 20 years or whatever it is. If I've been talking to a young man, did you make a commitment to this young lady's father? Have you talked with him? Have you heard what he has to say? Have you uh, have you asked him any advice? And likewise, if it happened to be a daughter. So maybe the tact, the skills that are ter- a therapist may learn in school with the knowledge of the principles and the wisdom found in the word of God. I would hope that a person who is operating from the Christian realm would think about all those things and not take it upon themselves to be the final authority. You mentioned earlier that we know we all know there's 50 different interpretations for most, you know, contentious Bible passages. And so I wonder if you're thinking, well, therapy could be good, but probably everything we need is here in scripture. Given the multiplicity of interpretations, how does someone going to scripture in, you know, instead of or before therapy, how do they know which interpretation of the Bible is the one that will give them the thing they need? It, it, doesn't it make more sense for them to say, well, if I go to a therapist, at least they've studied this for a few years and they have seen hopefully hundreds of clients and they've got something more than just me and my Bible with a mix of interpretations to choose from. What do you think about that problem? I, I honestly think the probably 90% or more, probably more like 99% of the scriptures that are open to many, many interpretations have very little to do with what we're talking about. I think, I think when we look at something and, and we are told to treat our brother as we would want to be treated, when we're told not to lie to each other, when we're told not to envy or, or to want what is not ours, and we're told to be charitable people, to love people. When Jesus walked the earth, everything I saw him and heard him say from the scriptures, it, most of it was pretty straightforward and fairly simple. Be kind. Think before you speak. If you know, if I know something's going to get a rise out of my life, I'm going to enjoy saying it. But if I know beforehand, is it worth saying it if I know it's going to hurt her or make her feel bad? So there are very simple things, I think, scriptural principles that are not open to very much interpretation. Do you think that the human mind is fairly simple? Like, am I pretty simple to figure out my own motivations? Because it might be that those scriptural principles are simple, but applying them to myself is difficult because I'm not simple. I, I don't know. I, that would that would be a tough one for me to for me to buy right there. You know, one of the things I've, I've one of the things I've noticed in talking to, and this is just could be friends that are they're just you know not really happy. They're all bothered by what's going on. And what what happens is is sometimes they get so involved in self and what's going on with their life and say, okay. And one of the things I say sometimes is, you know what? Why don't you concentrate on somebody else? Do something for someone else. Focus on someone else. And I'll bet you what you find is, is that some of the things you're worrying about are going to disappear. I'm not saying that's every, I'm not solution to everything, but I think sometimes, and maybe it is because of where we are in society, where we are in communication, maybe some, maybe it's more simple than we think sometimes. And if we could just put, concentrate on doing something for somebody else, I think it would help, help us more often than we think. Would it be fair to say that 
you're worried that a lot of people who end up in therapy are just kind of suffering from some narcissism and should be directing their efforts outward instead of inward. I guess, uh, yeah, yeah, I would I would agree with that. Find the good things to dwell on. Find the good thing. We all have our personality. I mean, obviously, we've heard it over and over. Some of us are, you know, what is it, half full, some Yeah, optimistic and pessimistic, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're right, exactly. So we have those personalities to deal with. But I do think we are capable of knowing our personality and then saying, okay, if I'm if I'm prone to this, if I'm prone to give money to everybody that walks by because I because I have a huge heart, I have to guard against that because that's not even good judgment. You know, in a in a in a, a kind heart can lead you astray unless it's mixed with some good wise judgment. <laughs> Okay, we are now moving from a therapy skeptic to a therapy convert, you might say. Here is my chat with my good buddy, Jonathan. Jonathan, thank you so much for being willing to have this conversation that's going to get quite raw and real and probably painful for you. And so I just want to start by thanking you for being willing to, first of all, talk through this topic with me before, as we did, We, we got together and chatted about this, and then to be so uh honest and really i mean i I suppose you're you're talking about some things that you haven't talked about publicly before and and so thank you yeah certainly not in this way definitely with close individuals right stuff like that right yeah so i want to start by asking if howard's perspective is one that you're familiar with Mm -hmm. it did remind me a lot of kind of the way i grew up which was a very conservative bible believing jesus loving family and howard specifically which we could talk about more, but he definitely reminded me of my own dad. Some of that just being what came across as like his genuineness and just like concern for people getting like wisdom from the Bible and from their community. So, but I did feel like there was a, a simplicity to it that I want to kind of engage more. Yeah, totally. So the format I'd like to do is, is we're going to hear your story. And then at the end of your story, we're going to have you respond more directly, more specifically to some of Howard's concerns. So can you start by saying a bit about your parents and where you grew up? East Coast suburb. In many ways, my parents and our family was in that like focus on the family Christianity world. So what I mean by that is, is everything is sort of Christianized from like music to movies to magazine to like purity culture movement. Like I had, I was, yeah. I was in it. Yeah. We've talked yeah. about parallel institutions on this and then a bunch on depolarized. Okay. You, you were totally in those evangelical parallel institutions to, oh, yeah. to, to your neck. Yeah. Got like the wild CDs every year. Oh yeah. Breakaway magazine. Yeah. Like I kiss dating goodbye, the whole thing. And I know a lot of people call it just generally fundamentalism and that's fine. I think it is. And it isn't in some ways, but my parents, met at a, a Bible study, actually. My mom was raised Roman Catholic, pretty strict Roman Catholic. So she met at a, a Protestant Bible study with my dad. I was the firstborn son after they got married pretty young and, you know, kind of got experimented on <laughs> as firstborns do. Yeah, as as we do, yeah. Same oh, you're, me. okay, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> and let's see, so yeah, my dad, like I said, reminds me a lot of Howard. I had memories growing up where I would come down the steps to go to school at an ungodly hour and 
he would be sitting there with his Cheerios, reading his old Bible. He was a very like steady, faithful man, you know, went to work every day, was home every night by dinner, that kind of thing, but pretty quiet and like peace loving. I mean, let's see, my mom was very different from him. She was more, I'd say like fiery and passionate, a lot more emotional and kind of volatile actually at times. One of the things you brought up when we were chatting about this earlier is there was a kind of a mechanistic understanding within your family of like, these are the things we do. And if we do them right, things will work out well. Yeah. That feels really true for my family. Yeah. 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 It just definitely seemed like if we just, if we just did it right, then we would all turn out okay. Everything from discipline, making sure you spank your children to, I mean, just the whole, the whole thing. Did that system, that way of doing things replace something in your mind that might have been there otherwise like yeah there's there's that intimacy i guess would be the word actually yeah, that yeah that was really i think missing and that i mean that's when you have rigidity and, and a lot of rules about things like it's hard to feel close and it's hard to be like oh i just messed up and that's actually pretty normal it's like well no that's wrong and we need to pray about that and you know get forgiveness or whatever so yeah, I think the connection that I really wanted as a kid, even just like the delight was kind of missing in a yeah. lot of ways. Would you say that either of your parents were emotionally available or emotionally unavailable? How would you answer that? Yeah, well, it's a lot easier. Like my dad seemed a lot less emotionally available. Um, my mom was and is, I think, an emotional person. But I don't think we really connected super well unless we were fighting. I think that's when I, especially when I look back on it, I think when we're fighting, we're really actually saying what's, what's truthful. Interesting. Um, Talk about some Catholic stereotypes. Just throw those into the story. (laughs) Um, So if your parents replaced sort of that transparency and intimacy with this sort of airtight system that they got from... Let's not blame them for that entirely. That was the cultural zeitgeist of the moment, right? I think so, yeah. There's a reason that a lot of people are going to hear this and go, that was my upbringing. It's not that they necessarily chose this of their completely free will. But did that then sort of provide them a way to not have to talk about their own stories? I think that the way they were raised, if we're going to continue with that zeitgeist idea, is why would you talk about yourself? Why would you talk about your own life and your own stories yeah, there's a job to do. We know what the job is. Let's do the job. Yeah. Well, and I don't think their parents, that generation's right. parents for the most part, were super emotionally available. I mean, both of my grandparents were World War II vets, you know, so I was always trying to listen for stories and things. And unfortunately, a lot of the information I got about my, the way my mom grew up actually happened when we were in conflict. Hmm. Um, and that's unfortunate, but it did, I think, give me a little bit of sort of compassion for some of the things she had to endure, like getting kicked out of her house when she was a teenager, for example, or, you know, a parent not coming to a wedding. Like that just gives you at least a little bit of data to go, whoa, okay, there was not a lot of goodness here in your family. So one thing that's important that we do get to is attachment, because it's going to matter for the rest of your story, what kind of attachment you had with your mom. That's kind of a topic we haven't covered on this podcast. People who are not familiar with psychology probably don't know what that is. Can you just give us like attachment one-on-one and then your own Hmm, brief 
the history with that as a kid? I think it's really simple and intuitive at a basic level. It's just kind of like, hey, how did your parents and the way they talk about it in attachment language is primary caregiver, right? How in tune were those primary caregivers with your emotional states? You know, we, we talk about that in love all the time. Like, how did they tune into you and sort of know it's nonverbal type of thing, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, they talk a lot in, a, in attachment about containment. How were those raw emotions or, or things in your world made sense out of and sort of held together by those, by those people, especially as a young, young, young child? You have no way of like holding all of these things together. Is, so to, to flesh that out, is that sort of like you come to your mom, you're like, I don't, this thing happened. I have all these confusing thoughts. And then your mom goes, that's okay. Let's hear them. That's normal. Is it, is it kind of like she can contain yes. that for you, basically? Yeah. yeah. First of all, she reads where you're at, yeah. right? And then she's able or he's able to yeah, make sense out of that reality and say, you know what? Actually, you're safe here. Yeah. So, yeah. When we're talking about containment, we are talking about safety. Even an infant and a mother, it's like that sense of arms around you, yeah. you know? And then, uh, you know, other categories for attachment are just like consistency and availability, those categories sort of build on each other, right? Okay. So some people have had primary caregivers that were um, inconsistently available, or maybe they were consistently obstructive. And what happens is those first two categories I mentioned of attunement and containment, like those require an ability to sort of be able to hold affect or like raw emotions on behalf of another person, which if you've endured any kind of like trauma in your own life or whatever... A lot of times a baby screaming, let's say, will trigger things in you as the mother or the father right. that you're not able to contain even in yourself, let alone for another. That's why. So you need a kind of a maturity to be able to step back and go, oh, this baby's crying for baby reasons. And I need right. to just be big enough to get past my own stuff so that I can attend to right. it. Right. And help them make sense of it. Oh, right. you're, you're screaming because blah, blah, blah. Not... Yeah, not for anything uh, inherited in them. And so attachment, I mean, if you want to read more about it, there's great books out there. It's like Attached, which is a really good book on how attachments play out in like romance and, and mm -hmm. relationships today. Yeah, that's that's super good. But they give categories of like secure attachment, insecure attachment, and then the two and insecure. There's three really, but the two and in insecure is like avoidant. Those of us who are sort of like trying to create space um, for us in relationship and the anxious who anxious ones, which is more like, please tell me I'm okay. Please tell me I'm okay. And they, right. you know, and then there's chaotic, which is sort of self-explanatory. But you also mentioned that you were sort of groomed to not tell the truth. Exactly. Can you, I imagine that has oh, something to do with that, the, something with the rigidity and the system you, you maybe got incentivized not to, not to say what really happened or what you were really feeling. I mean, we're starting to see a picture forming of this. Some of that is like making sense of like, as a kid, I lied all the time, got in trouble for it. Got, didn't get in trouble for it. Cause it was so often in some ways that I look back on it and I have to go, okay, what is that theme? What is that pattern? Why was I lying so much? And I kind of have come to believe that like symptoms or problems that we think we have, they're actually about another problem. So our problems aren't our problems. They're pointing to a problem underneath of it. Shut up. You're wrong. All my problems are the ones I think they are. <laughs> Stop it. Stop talking. <laughs> no, yeah, you're so right. They're, yeah. they're symptoms. You have they're, to be right. Yeah. They're, 
Yeah, I, I would suggest everybody listening think about that. Like, think about their problems and go, are my problems my problems or are they actually symptoms of a larger problem that I'm not dealing with? Hmm. That's just a helpful way to go. Yeah. So lying for me was, was a symptom, I think, of not feeling like I could tell the truth. Was the being sort of incentivized to lie, was that a result of more who your parents were or this kind of airtight system uh, or both? Or do you know? I don't really know. To try and parse those out, those two things, yeah, I don't know. Would you have any ideas about it? (laughs) (laughs) No. No, I don't know anything about this yet. Um, I mean, yeah, I didn't want to get, you know, I don't know. It's just, some of it's just avoiding punishment. Right. And knowing that if if you said what was actually happening, it wasn't really going to be understood for some reason. You've got to ask, okay, how much of that was, you were actually... They actually would have been fine hearing that. Mm, Um, But I think I have to trust, and this will come up so much more in the rest of what we're talking about, but I more and more have to be able to go back and look at my younger self and go, you were actually really smart. You were really wise. You were doing what you thought you needed to do. And it wasn't your job to sort of figure out when you could tell the truth. Yeah, you're a kid. Right. Yeah. Did you guys talk about sex with your parents? Um. So I I remember the moment specifically. I was in fourth grade and I don't even want to say what I said at the lunch table to this other this other gal across, but it was so shocking what I said had had the had the word penis in it, I'll tell you that. And oh, uh get the censors ready. <laughs> I don't I don't know what I can say on this this podcast what I can. But whatever. um the sh- she like got so upset, got the lunch monitor and he took me straight down to the principal's office and the principal called my mother. And I remember this particular phrase that I used being written in my mother's handwriting on the, on a napkin at home when I, when I crept back uh, home after school. And that sort of initiated a, a sex talk by my dad, hmm. which, which went something like, Hey, how do you know what this means? Some of what I said, like how, yeah. How, how do you know these words and, and what this means? And me just sort of playing dumb. And then I remember he asked me, like, what do you think sex is? And I said, I think it's when two people get naked and they kiss. Something like that. Yeah. And he was like, no, it's actually a lot more than that. And then uh, and then that was it. Oh, he A <laughs> lot more. That was the answer. He didn't enumerate. Yeah, no, more. It's, it's a lot more than that. And then our conversation was over. Okay, well, that feels like a pretty good case study in what we've been talking about. Um, although I bet there are some Dobson chapters in the Focus on the Family stuff where he could have gone a little more into depth. I think that's where he wasn't necessarily listening to Dobson. Yeah, I, that was just the unavailable, like the, the stoic kind of thing that your dad did. Maybe he was thinking at the time, like, we, we need to have more conversations, but... Uh, I mean, my dad has been a therapist for 40 years and I never got the sex talk. So yeah. there's something going on. I don't think that yeah. my dad would ever recommend don't give your kid a sex talk, oh. but he just never got there for whatever reason, you right. know? So, right. Oh, there's knows? a lot going on. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a lot going on. How were you taught to view the Bible as a kid? The Bible is sort of the center of everything, right? You know, it wasn't tradition and all these other reason, all these other things. It's like, it's just the Bible and what the Bible has to say is sort of the final authority. Everything from, you know, we need to be learning creation science as a kid because that's the most biblical, which is, it just made sense in our system. Like, of course, 
Like, what does the Bible say? Because the Bible has the answer. It's so funny. Thinking about this in retrospect is ridiculous, right? But you have these Bibles then, like remember the teen study Bible or stuff like that, where it's got these topics in it, right? Topics on like homosexuality, on, on dating and all these things. And you're like, wait a second. Those are your thoughts. Whoever wrote this Bible now jammed right next to the scripture itself. It's a metaphor for uh, evangelicalism right there. It's crazy. Yeah. The Bible is clear. It's sufficient. If you don't understand it, then you need to talk to some authority who does. Every day we're, we're reading the Bible. And that's, that's sort of how you measure your, your Christian faith in some ways. The Bible, though, even if it was that, like, brought to me that way, it was something I was always interested in. And I can remember really sweet young memories of sitting in my living room putting Legos together and listening to these, these cassette tapes of like old Testament stories Yeah, and just being totally fascinated by them. I'm thinking of like Samson and, and all these like amazing stories that are in the Bible. So I was always kind of captured by that as a kid. And my parents wanted me to have that kind of a, I think experience with, with the Bible of like loving it. That's one way I kind of want to honor what they wanted that I still have to this day is like a love for for the Bible and some of those stories. So totally. Yeah. yeah. What we're questioning is not really the Bible itself, but it's just, what are these sort of social structures that come up around the text? Right. 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 So, okay. We've got a pretty good understanding of your life up through adolescence, but you had a major source of trauma starting around nine years old. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I think it's best for me to talk about it more, uh, thematically than, and sort of more generally, but, um, yeah. the, basic gist of it is that starting around age nine over the course of about three years, um, I couldn't tell you how many times, many times, um, I was, uh, sexually abused by someone older who had access to my family. Um, as I've learned more about it now, sexual abuse stats are like, you know, one in six, men, boys have been sexually abused, one in four women. And a lot of times the perpetrators are people who have close proximity or access to the family. And so makes sense, yeah. for people that don't know that, um, I think it's something that, that needs to be, that needs to just be immediate access knowledge for people. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And then oftentimes as was true for me, the perpetrator is someone who's, who's earned some level of trust either from the caregivers or, or from the victim themselves by like offering things that were in fact maybe missing in their family. And so, uh, and now we're starting to see a picture emerge here. Yeah. Yeah. Without getting too specific, yeah, sure. you know, w- what do you think this person was offering you that you was natural for you to want as a nine to 12 year old that you weren't getting at home or school or whatever? Generally speaking, we can just say like attention. Yeah. He seemed so cool to me. Mm. And so there was this, Oh wow. This person is like paying attention to me and wants to know like how I'm experiencing this music that we're listening to or, or whatever. Yeah. So that level of going back to those attachment categories, right? Though that a level of tuned inness to where I'm at, even at times containment of, this is a safe place for you. And the Which diabolical the, nature yeah, of it is it's absolutely in, not 
fucking true. Yeah, but, the most insidious part, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so, so stuff oh. like that. And so, you know, my my question when you first told me this, just as friends, I was like, how could you let it go on for three years? I mean, that's sort yeah. of the first question is like, yeah. why not run out of the room the first time? And, and so we're we're trying to kind of get right narratively an answer to that question, right? So, and some of what I just said, I think, speaks exactly, to that exactly. Yeah. Um, so that helps me. Could you could you tell your parents about it? There's sort of two ways to ask this question. Did you feel like you could tell them? Another way to ask the same question is, since you're a kid, nine, ten years old, did they create an environment such that you could tell them? Because, of course, it's not your agency is not the main question at nine years old. Um, so feel free to answer either of those yeah. wordings. You're already putting words to it, but for anybody out there who has somebody they love or or whatever that has been abused, it's really important how you ask those questions. And sadly, a lot of times there's so much shame and uh, self-judgment that's out there that it's like people will interpret what you say as, as judgment against them. But I've thought about that question for a long time of like, why couldn't I tell someone? So, but I think that the way in and and the way towards healing is to be able to engage that question with a level of like kindness and also just genuine curiosity. Like you did it. I, for me, it's like you didn't. So I wonder what that was about. Like what's going on there. One thing that's true and was true for me and is true for a lot of people who've been sexually harmed is you take on this, this sense of self blame sometimes, or like this is happening because of something about me. Other thing you take on a lot of times is that felt sense of complicity that a lot of times is part of that grooming process. Mm, yeah. So there's this level of like ambivalence we talk about a lot where it's like part of me, the good part of me that desired connection and intimacy, like wanted this. And that's like really, really hard to say without kindness, but it's like, but then also, and it was, and it was abuse and it totally was somebody taking advantage of, the power dynamics there and all that sort of stuff. Right. So, uh, but then in terms of what we've talked about already, uh, as it related to me not feeling like I could speak the truth in my family, the idea of going to my parents, I thought if I were to say something like that, it would be my fault, first of all. And second of all, it would mm-hmm. just be like, you're, I don't know, disgusting or like, this is terrible or um, all sorts of, I wouldn't say conscious thoughts in my mind at the time but like just I knew I knew in my very bones that I couldn't sometimes I get really interesting emails from listeners of this show and I got one a while back from a guy named Kaylee Hargrove and it included his story about applying for conscientious objector status in the Air Force and this was especially interesting because a big part of his change of heart on military force and violence coincided with a season of faith deconstruction and reconstruction. I invited him to have a conversation with me about all of that, and the result is our first patron-only bonus episode for the month of June. All patrons have access to these episodes. You even get a nice little RSS feed emailed out to you when you sign up, such that you can just copy and paste that into your favorite podcast app, And these bonus episodes show up automatically just the same as regular episodes. Here uh, is a couple minutes, some short clips from my chat with Kaylee. I remember having this thought that America was like the new promised land. 
I mean, there's there is no questioning whether or not you know it it would be right for a Christian to take part in the military. It is very easy for us to create an us versus them mentality. Yeah, because because there's those of us who have accepted Jesus and we no longer have the wrath of God on us, but everyone else, God is angry at them. What were the first century Jews looking for in a Messiah? And what they were looking for was this person that was going to be set up by God, who's going to come in and free Israel from the oppression of the Roman government. I mean, in a Jewish mindset, the Messiah isn't going to welcome in the Samaritans. They're from that northern kingdom that turned away, and they, they're not supposed to be welcomed back. Right. It's like we might say, hey, Muslims could worship the real God, but they're worshiping the false God. They have a chance. Mm-hmm. They've chosen this. They've made their bed. And Jesus would come into that exact line of thinking and go, um, let me tell you the parable of the Good Samaritan. <laughs> exactly. The Good Syrian That's... Refugee, you know, or something like that. A lot of what you believed was not necessarily stuff that was overtly told to you, but just kind of built into the culture around you. And there's like this sense that if I was affected so much just by my culture and like I still have plenty of that culture built into me, then obviously a person that is raised in a completely different culture, they're going to be, they're going to have their own you know, set of beliefs that are so culturally ingrained that it's not necessarily something that they can just break free of. Right. So it is literally God talking to God and he says, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And to me, that is just the most powerful statement, I think, in the in the entire Bible, because it is the ultimate sign of God's love for mankind that he would allow himself to be brutalized by his own creation. The point is, is I don't feel as if even even if the country I lived in was being invaded, that I could take part uh, in fighting off the invaders. If that sounded interesting to you, or if you just want to be a part of the Facebook community, which means you get to help me write questions for guests and ask and vote on the listener questions that I generally answer at the end of episodes, then become a patron. Patreon.com slash Dan Koch or you have permission pod dot com click become a patron it's just five bucks a month you can give more if you want but there are also some scholarships available for those of you who truly cannot afford it in this season of your life just email me and we will work it out money should not be a factor in keeping anybody from this community you have permission podcast at gmail.com okay back to the episode I want to say, because we know Howard is listening to this and Howard's going to come back and chat at the end. Just to be clear, we're not saying to Howard that if you have the kind of view of the Bible and family systems that Howard and your dad had, let's say they're the same, that it will inevitably lead to a situation like this. Like, you know, these stories are complex. Your parents' lives come into it, you know. So it's just, just to be clear that we're not trying to nail a certain kind of evangelicalism to the wall right? for for all to deride it in shame or whatever. I think that that is definitely true. And it's also true that there are structures that exist and it's not necessarily Howard's or my parents' fault for that. But there are real structures that exist that create possibilities like this to happen. Yeah, sure. Um, 
and there's there's a lot of silencing and there's a lot of no that's wrong we don't talk about that um in these structures and i th- i think that's it's that's that's the evil that's involved in it. Yeah, something that we won't be able to talk about today is the there is obviously a relationship here between purity culture in its most in its most succinct form, which is that like sex makes one impure in the sight of God in some way, oh, uh, just by yeah. itself. And and that's really kind of another episode, but that's worth just noting here that that's going to play into this if you're in that as opposed to a view where. If you're not thinking of it in terms of purity, you might just go, this person did a wrong thing to me. And that nothing is sort of sullied in that, right? Nothing is ruined. Totally. Because there's no pure thing to get impure. Right. Um, right. So, yeah. I was in one of those groups, those like um, I Kiss Dating Goodbye groups with, with yeah. my parents. I'm in a relationship. I have a girlfriend. Right. In high school. We're, we're reading through this book and that alone is funny that like you could, that says something about your family's dynamics that you could be reading. I kiss dating goodbye with your parents while you're dating someone that they know you're dating that we're not talking about and that you're not talking about that. Right. Is, that is yeah right there. That's something. Yeah. And I think like you said this already, but like, I think it's, it's like diabolical that I had to sort of endure the purity movement. I mean, think about the messaging, right? It's like, if you have sex before marriage, you're like essentially ruined. Maybe God can forgive you, but of course he can. But it's like you're you're sort of ruined. And then you add to that sort of sexual harm. And it's like, well, I guess I'm ruined. They would talk about like recovering your virginity or having like a virginity of heart. That's what it was. <laughs> That's the phrase I used to hear was like, virginity even if heart. you've messed up. You can come down to the altar and you can restore your virginity of heart and God will, and God will honor that. But like, we all know that that's not real virginity It's kind of in, in our own minds. Right. That just it's second tier that might give you like a better testimony or something. Yeah. If it's not too bad. Definitely works for the testimony because the person who just stays a virgin, that's a boring testimony. Boring. So boring. <laughs> you need a little drama. So I, let, just to back up a little bit. So oh, the, okay. the abuse stops around 12, right? Yeah. But uh, yeah. um, looking back on that age, so now you're tween, you're preteen mm-hmm. and teen years, like where do you see effects of that uh, trauma? <laughs> yeah. The, the impossible question. Um, it's maybe the million dollar question. You may be answering this forever, but what have you seen so far? I feel like I have more access to those questions retrospectively, you know? Sure. And I guess to sort of connect it to our topic of permission for therapy, mm. you know, we all live in our own bodies and minds, in our own stories and experience. And so for the most part, we're, we're thinking that all of those things are really normal, right? Like that's our normal. Example would be like, aren't all dads like get, get really angry and and hit mom when like, and that's, that's like real. So until you get out of that environment and have those, those sort of like, right guys questions. Yeah. Old enough to to everyone, right? Yeah. Old enough to be able to talk about that Um, with sort of semi adult or friends, you know, to have that kind of self-reflection Yeah, that doesn't come right away. Right. Right. In some sense, that's what this whole network of podcasts is. You know, my own podcast, Bad Christian, Homebrew Christianity, all of these, this kind of world is is kind of just like a, right guys? 
you know, writ large. Oh, yeah. I grew up and thought my parents were raptured 20 times before I was 15. (laughs) Also, you know, maybe you didn't talk about that with anybody in person. So it's just interesting you say that. Yeah. So, yeah, a lot of a lot of things like I would say themes like um, sexuality or intimacy. I had a lot of rage and anger. Some of that has to do with the theme of powerlessness. I think when you feel when you don't feel you have power in your life, you sort of you sort of try and take it. Should I move into college or we just want to stay there for yeah, a Yeah, well, I'll just let me fill in a couple of details because we did talk about this beforehand and you feel free to, if you want to add some color to this, you ended up in this four-year relationship with a girl, which is the one you're dating when you were reading I Kiss Dating Goodbye, <laughs> as you were literally dating. <laughs> right. But like you didn't go beyond kissing. I mean, do you right. want to talk about any of this stuff? It, it seems to me really related. I dated this gal all through high school and when I look back on it, in all honesty, like we were just best friends. Yeah. And which probably, I mean, talk about attachment. Yeah. Played a, played a huge role for you. Probably gave you something really good that you needed. I think so. Yeah. I mean, especially like who doesn't need a friend who's their friend for four years in high school? Well, yeah. Like just, that alone. Right. Yeah. Right. Somebody who, who you can kind of talk to and make out with from time to time. You know, that's good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, but um, making out always ended the friendship for me. I had too much, <laughs> too much evangelical sex guilt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, even that and anxiety. Wow. Yeah. Oh, dude, like clockwork. If I made out with a girl, whether or not I decided I was dating her, like clockwork. Next morning, wake up, deep sense of anxiety and dread and guilt. I didn't know it was anxiety. I thought it was guilt, the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. because I was right conviction. Yeah, thought it was conviction. Right, right. And I right. literally, I ended four or five relationships or almost relationships in a row like that until. Really, actually, until I met my wife is crazy. Yeah. I actually yeah. think that God kind of miraculously removed that yeah. the m- morning after our second date yeah. to get me a message. <laughs> I could be wrong about that, but literally every single girl until my wife. So there you go. Just my whole, until I was 23. And I totally can relate to that. I think that what I'm what I'm realizing is that a lot of my sexuality was just basically disavowed. It was just mm. like pushed aside and it was convenient to sort of have the like... I'm a pure guy kind of persona. Yeah. Well, that worked out well yeah, yeah. with your, with that pr- fairly platonic relationship. Yeah. Right. It just was really split for me because I knew it wasn't true. Um, and mm. was, and was confirming those, those things, uh, even in like addiction to pornography. Right. So like, right. so it's not like I'm thinking I'm actually like a pure person. It's right. just like a split, at, at least a split. But yeah, she definitely was more, I think, in touch with her own sexuality and would be pushing things at time. And I would always be sort of the one to sort of shut it down. Yeah. Let's get to college a little bit. So this is where the depression comes in. You change majors a bunch of times. You have a track scholarship. You drop out, you know, through the depression and forfeit your scholarship. Yeah. I mean, college, first of all, is when I'm finally free. And it felt like freedom. Oh, yeah. Because... College was so much for me about escaping from and not really moving into anything specifically besides my running. I mean, that was kind of where all of my focus was, was on my running. When that when that fell apart uh, for me, which had to do with injuries and, like you said, losing my scholarship, that was like a rock bottom sort of experience because I was like, what was I if not, you know, John Coop, the runner? That was the first time I can remember having a a significant time where it was just like hard to even get out of bed. Just deep feelings of 
hopelessness, despair that I'm sure so many people have experienced in their life too. Before I ask you how you got into the idea of studying psychology to become a therapist. Oh, right. Yeah. I think the first step is like you went to counseling first. So how did that happen? And when did you become sort of open to being a client of a therapist? Yeah. And I would say if anybody's interested in counseling, just go, go ahead and do some first. Yeah, do some first. That's <laughs> like, a good idea. It's just a great idea. Yeah. It was actually at a, a church I was at in college. They were talking about this thing called biblical counseling. And I was in a kind of pre-seminary track at a small Christian school. So it was like, oh, this would be a great idea. You know, so yeah. the church was talking about it. And then they had a class at my school, my undergraduate school. So I went and did that class on biblical counseling. And it's sort of like a cartoonish sketch of that would be, I, I just remember going and e each class was sort of set up as we would go through the history of psychotherapy and talk about the basic epistemological and anthropological assertions of each thinker. So Freud and Skinner and Rogers and Beck, and then we would talk about why those things were sort of why they were wrong why they were wrong <laughs> yeah. or why why they were at least at least in, inherently flawed sure but then we would also get teaching and learning about something called like nuthetic or biblical counseling and what's funny is it was started by this guy named Jay Adams who wrote a book called Psychoheresy hmm just to give you sort of a some of its like fundamental okay, so DNA. There's really there's really something wrong with the is this right? There's something really wrong with the secular psychotherapy movement. Mm -hmm. However, uh, people need counseling. Any anyone who pastors for long enough yeah. realize that people need more than simply showing up at church. Yes. So this is kind of a middle way that someone devised of like, well, yes. maybe we can just give them Bible verses. <laughs> right in maybe a, in we a can create setting. a model that is that is deeply biblical that can help people work through change in their life healing in their life that's modeled after i think to speak to some of the biblical counseling model it would be that's modeled after idolatry like and okay and our fundamental sin problems okay well now um, that doesn't sound too bad the way you're saying it well i'm trying to give it some <laughs> yeah you know, it's out there today, right? Sure, and, yeah. and and I think a lot of intelligent people are working with it and I'm sure it's it's transforming and yeah. and adapting to our day in ways that I don't understand because I'm not in it yeah. anymore. So I'm just trying to give it at least some, yeah. here's what it's really about. I have an anecdote from about 20 years ago when I was in high school and I considered studying psychology for my undergrad. I didn't end up doing that. I went to philosophy but my college counselor who had gone to Point Loma, which is a Nazarene, pretty conservative college. Oh, yeah, I've been in a Nazarene church. She came in, she told me, she was like, uh, counseling is not right. Only biblical counseling is, is you know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and my dad, who at that point had been a therapist for 20 years, wrote a fairly impassioned letter to her. Uh, sort of both explaining why she was wrong and, you know, whatever. And then she wow. totally backed down. She was like, I apologize. Your dad gave a really good case <laughs> and I will stop telling high school students that they shouldn't study psychology. Wow. It was like a rare instance of like something changing or maybe she just felt like this guy's paying tuition. I can't. I mean, I don't know. Do, what you, her do you like have were. that letter? Because you should put that in the show notes. <laughs> I don't have the letter. No. Oh, man. Maybe I could ask my dad about it. But I, I distinctly remember that. So my experience with biblical counseling from the very beginning was my dad going, no, OK, she doesn't know what she's talking about. She didn't <laughs> she didn't go to school for therapy. She's just repeating yeah. uh, some conservative evangelical talking points. Right. 
but right. it, it, right. it is nonetheless a it is a thriving movement. It certainly is still around. Um, what what is it that you would say now is not worthwhile about, or what, what where is it lacking that approach of of just basing everything on the text? Well, I don't feel confident enough speaking to what it is today. Sure, but at least as I understood it. I think one of the limits is that you are dealing in a model. It sort of fundamentally comes down to like what changes people, right? And so, mm. so what do you think and how, are, how do people experience healing and growth? And I, I am so convinced at this point that it's actually the relationship. And I think there's plenty of research that has backed this up now. Mm. So, so I would actually say that as long as biblical counselors are believing that the dynamics of the relationship itself that they're developing with that person are allowing them to explore and uh, and experience change in in the room then then there might be some like really good good things happening out of it i just don't think that the bible itself is like a manual for understanding like a way of of doing therapy so it's just not written to be that it's not it's just not written to be that and we have so many other resources in so many other disciplines neurobiology being one of them, right? Where if we're not utilizing the knowledge that's been given to us, and you could say by God, right? then we're just missing something. So yeah, maybe I would just say it's example like, would be like biblical surgery. <laughs> I'm a surgeon, but I only practice biblical surgery. Yeah. It would not make any sense. Like right. for surgery, you need the medical community, what they've learned about surgery and how yeah. organs react to this. And it's like, Psychology is not as maybe clear of a science as brain surgery is, for instance, but that doesn't mean that there is no knowledge there yeah. gained through repeated experiment and et cetera, yeah. et cetera, that just is not in the Bible, yeah. just like surgery is not in the Bible. I don't think psychoeducation, so like learning things cognitively, is actually the, the main way that we change. And so if we're just yeah. replacing that with biblical knowledge. Ah, so rather than teaching Freud, I'll teach you the Bible. That's right. not, no. that just doesn't do it. Uh-uh. Right. Because no. if Freudian psychoanalysis changes people, it's not that they read a book by Freud. Right. It's that someone goes through a, a practice with them yeah. that works or doesn't work. Yeah. And so to simply replace the informational bits from the Bible instead of from Freud. Right. It's like, well, there's still just a whole other thing that we're not even talking about when we're delineating biblical counseling from non-biblical counseling. Exactly. I ended up actually going to counseling for the first time with the professor that was teaching this class. Ah. Which, I, I mean, I don't know what you want to think about that at this point. I, I don't <laughs> well, know if the ethics are, are great there. Daddy issues, maybe somewhere um, lurking. Uh, who knows? Yeah. Mm. So he's a professor, but he also does this biblical counseling. Yeah, he's, he a, he's a practicing biblical yeah. counselor. Um, so he agrees to meet with me. How'd it go? <laughs> I don't want to say totally terrible, but I think it was like totally terrible. Okay. Um, okay. Like, like we're talking from the jump, jump, like metal chairs in the back of a church. Um uh, and we start having these conversations and he goes into, into count into not counseling mode, but teaching mode. Huh? Right. So he's literally drawing on a, on a piece of paper in, in front of me, stuff that I've already learned in his class, first of all. And, and second of all, it's just like totally missing me. Hmm. Um, and so he just didn't seem at all curious about me or my story or what, what was going on in me. He was just like, here, let me like, kind of like remind you of this teaching. And then maybe that will be what you need for me. 
Did he ask you about any past sources of trauma? No, definitely not. Hmm. So that never came up. You didn't get a chance to tell him what had happened. No. And to be fair, I wasn't planning on that going in. Sure. But I, I mean, I think in some ways a counselor's job is to sort of help draw out the person right. to speak what has thus far remained unspeakable. Especially if, as you said earlier, we're not always aware of our problems. If our problems are a symptom of something deeper than totally not who, but a therapist is, is it their job to tease that out of us? Right. Right. In a, you know, in a loving and whatever safe way and totally collaborative way too, sure. I would add. But yeah, he was much more about, let's look at the root of the problem, which is sin. Let's figure out where you're sort of worshiping things wrongly how did you leave that session or sessions like feeling or thinking about yourself? That wasn't going to be the thing that helped me is kind of the, maybe the thing I left with. So you, you lumped this in with all other possible forms of counseling at this point in your life. Yeah. I still remained interested. I think I more so was like, well, maybe not for me. Yeah. But maybe for other people. Yeah, interesting. I still, you know, continued to go into ministry and wanted to be informed by some of the biblical counseling stuff. So yeah. I was like, I wasn't like a immediate dismissal or hater. I was like, this must still be the way. I just, it didn't work for me and maybe this person. So you go to this bad therapist, if we can reduce him to that, <laughs> um, who doesn't even ask you any questions that might bring up the fact that you were abused and you're thinking that can't be right, right? So do you decide to, at this point, tell someone about the abuse or is it... Is that not how things were rolling for you? Well, it's just crazy. And maybe people out there that have experienced some of this will relate, but I still haven't made those connections yet. Hmm. I, I mean, it, it's, I mean, at this point I'm, you know, in my twenties, but I think I also, I just didn't feel safe enough to know why it would even be good to try and make sense out of that. It's like something to maybe forget and to, to not think about. Sure. But I was on a road trip with a really good friend who I'd become very close to. And she was one of the first people in my life who really engaged me in terms of like wanting to know about my life and how I grew up. And actually thinking about it, she had, she had a master's degree in counseling. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Which, yeah, until recently I didn't, um, I hadn't even thought about it that way. It took someone with a master's in counseling to get you to admit your past trauma. That's interesting. It did. did. It's interesting. And, you know, she, in so many ways, did all the right things. Like, she didn't feel like she needed to hold that on all herself. She recommended that I go and talk to a friend of ours who's a a pastor priest. And and so I did. Um, There was something, I think, about that experience of her hearing that, kind of bearing that with me and going, that's a big deal. Hmm. Yeah. And... What, how have you engaged that? Like who you need to talk to somebody. So about she that. sort of like, gave you permission to like redig that up and take it seriously as a part of your story. Yeah. And totally didn't like shame me in it or, right. you, you know, get disgusted by me, like things that for some reason I thought would happen. So I did, I went to this, uh, this priest friend of ours and he really encouraged me to go to therapy. I, I remember we were sitting on his back porch talking about it and he was like, I think, I think you should go see someone. And someone who's like professionally trained and I remember going, but I'm like, I'm totally fine. Like, why would I do that? Hmm. And he was really gentle about it, but he was, he was also like, you're, you're not fine. Yeah. Like this actually makes a lot of sense. So 
that kind of started the process where I went to someone who practiced a contemporary form of gestalt therapy, which is kind of well known at this point. It was pretty hard and uncomfortable at first. Yeah, put us in the room. What's gestalt yeah. therapy like? The concept is we're going to make alive what you're talking about yeah, here yeah. and now. Yeah. And hopefully allow you to then have better access to your to your emotions. It's reasonable. To, yeah. It also has some form of it that I would call parts work at this point, which is which is basically like talking to parts of yourself, right? So it's like so that that angry part. What does that yeah. angry part want to say if it had a voice? That this, kind of thing. This is kind of like internal family systems. Internal right? family systems. Like, yeah. I heard that the other day and I thought, oh, it's about the family, but it's no like every person has like different parts of themselves exactly. that are sort of front and center at different times. Right. Mm-hmm. Experientially in the moment, it was just, it was kind of weird and I didn't know what was going on and I didn't have much access to some of these, some of these parts that sure. he was trying to get, help me get access to. And so I ended up moving pretty soon after I started with him, like a couple months in. So I had to stop. I would have continued, but we weren't getting much traction. Sometimes a particular therapist is not the right fit, Right. Totally. I, the first therapist I ever saw, I saw him one time and and fired him. Yeah, and so I, that's fine, you know. Yeah, and I would, yeah, I would just say to people like, <laughs> if you're gonna look for a therapist, like, treat it like a first date kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know. Like, if it's if there's no vibe right. there, it's probably right. Just listen to yourself. Yeah, but it did, it did at least give me an experience that I was like, okay, I'm I'm on this track now. Yep. This like, is gonna I be need important to, in your life. This is gonna way. be important, and so when I moved. I sat down with this, uh, I was doing this internship at a church. I was at this point, like, I'm telling people, at least people in this capacity. So yet another pastor, which is an interesting theme for me. And he recommended me to see someone who was kind of a specialist in in trauma work. She works primarily with people who've come out of uh, sexual abuse. She just provided such an immediately safe environment. I could just tell, like, I just kind of listened to my my reactions to her initially and i was like i think this is going to be great and i've been working with her for several years now um and it it's been it's been really it's been really great it was like maybe a half a year into working with her or something like that i was like this is this is transformational stuff like this is mm-hmm. amazing yeah. and in so many ways i'm i'm now able to speak things that were at one time unspeakable and i'm feeling more connected emotionally and so i was just like maybe i want to do this kind of thing i brought that to her sort of uh, you know with some trepidation like what is she going to say when i say this and she was like maybe you should um maybe you should do something else anything else for like for a little while and decide if you really want to do it because you're in the middle of doing some pretty heavy personal yes. work yeah right <laughs> yes that's totally why and sure. she and she had a, a a soberness about the work she was yeah. like this is yeah. like you are bearing people's heartbreak and mm-hmm. that's not for everyone but i do really relate to what you were saying about this is really transformative it's a powerful thing perhaps this is the way i do ministry because that I mean, you know, and I haven't spoken about this a ton on the show, but like I am starting a PhD in counseling psychology yes. in in the fall, which I'm really excited about. Well, me too. But it's partly because I don't have really good language for this yet. But it's something like as much as I love theology and talking abstractly about things in my own life, I think I have been benefited more by my time in therapy 
which does relate to the theology, but it's like mm-hmm. of course, closer yeah. to the proximate cause, you might say, or something like that. In terms of if huh. if I want to change my mind or my habits or my, you know, if I want to change the way that I am feeling when my wife says this kind of a thing, or if I want to change my willingness to like work with the poor, I could think theologically about that. I could like remind myself how much the gospels talk about feeding the poor. Yeah. But like, what about the fact that I feel disgust at a certain kind of a poor person Mm. or superiority when Mm -hmm. I see quote Mm. white trash people in my neighborhood, maybe psychology is the way to like get at that Mm. and actually change what I want to change. You know, don't quote me on all this stuff. It's still forming. <laughs> well, you're quoting yourself right I know, now. I know, I know, I know. Unless you edit it out. I I just, no, I'm going to leave it. I just mean like, <laughs> this is me verbally processing it right now, but there's yeah. something about that that well, really resonates with me. And there's a reason I wanted to do an episode about therapy when I, yeah. this episode has been in the making since this show was a twinkle in my eye, right? Yeah. I can fill this in a little bit and then just add anything you want. <clears throat> you're like, who, what kind of school of thought should I go to? Yeah. How about the guy who trained this woman? <laughs> right. And he is Dan Allender, and he's in Seattle with the Seattle School of Theology and exactly, Psychology. And yeah. so correct. I'm in my third year. Third year. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, one about more year. To, I'm about to head into my last year. Right. You can do it in three. You can do it in four. Right. Yeah. I. It's funny because I had heard about Dan Allender before I had seen this counselor. Yeah. And when I found out that she was being trained by him, I was like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. Yeah. And so, go. yeah. So when it came time to make my decision it was for sure at the top of my list he's like a guy who specializes exactly in abuse and trauma right so we have actually kind of done this as we've gone along for anything we've missed i'd love to go back through some of your story and just pepper in a you know Mm -hmm. a few things that with your perspective now having Mm -hmm. done three out of four years of a master's maybe just anything that pops out let's start with like if we do this right then things will work out that kind of early milieu of your Mm -hmm. childhood yeah. Yeah. One of the things we talk about in school lies is splitting. And What's this is splitting? is splitting is just this, um, this basic concept where we like break the world up into black and white into good and bad. And we have this need, all of us do, to put the bad somewhere is the way, way I'd say it. And mm. so, you know, fundamentalism in some ways is, is, is an example of this kind of splitting where a group needs some way of coping with the realities of the world, fear, right. anxiety, uh, mystery, and sure, but you know, we have to be careful. And I think some of my fellow students and myself even do this at, at, at school is where we, we then say fundamentalism is bad, right? That's so the then, new boogeyman. Yeah. Right. And so we're kind of just doing the same thing. Right. Whereas the reality is how are we working? How are we working with the bad in us? How are we working with the things like you just said earlier that are disgusting us? Yeah. And, um, what are we disgusted in, in ourself? Um, and how are we allowing that to have, just to, to be embraced, to be become a part of us, right? Yeah, that resonates with me. I mean, it, it, rela- it seems like it relates to a lot of the work I've done with Depolarize. One thing that seems sort of obviously clear to a lot of us is that there are these giant tribes on either side of any particular issue or, for instance, on either side of the culture war in America right now. And like most people are fairly unthinkingly in their tribes. They are only consuming stuff that their tribes put out. Mm-hmm. They're in these echo chambers. It feels really good. But we might ask a, a, a more meta question, which is why are such a high percentage of people content to be in one of those tribes and not be in the more difficult gray of the middle? And perhaps the answer to that question is a psychological answer, which is that like, because people don't really know what's driving them. Mm-hmm. They haven't really been able to or willing to, or they haven't had a 
they haven't suffered enough that they've needed to mm-hmm. sort of like mm-hmm. get deeper down into their own personal story or motivations or whatever. Yeah. So, so then they need this tribe like the people of Westboro Baptist need Westboro Baptist to make them feel like they're a part of something. And so, yeah, maybe the answer there is the, is the personal work. Is that oh. naive? No, dude. I- <laughs> What do I know? But I think yes. I well, think yes and, yeah. but yes, okay. the personal work. Sure. And let's start here. Anything you hate probably has something to do with something you've disavowed in yourself. So oh, just yeah. just try and like chew on that for a little bit. Um, well, th- this is something I've noticed maybe at a lower level is like people who really annoy me are almost always have some characteristic that I have. Sure. And yeah. it's usually the thing that I annoy other people with is that like, which I'm not always aware of that ends up being the thing that other people annoy me with. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Like I hate this guy. He's talking the whole time and he's not listening to anybody. And then I go and, uh, starting to draw a picture of myself <laughs> in we, my worst moments. Uh, we call that some form of like projective identification, right? Where okay, you're like, well, fine. The bad, the bad's in the other person and it's super annoying, but it's also in me but and I'm going to work on it in you. And this is kind of the, this is a cliche, but it's like the televangelist who ends up being really into coke and male prostitutes is the one who was railing against homosexuality. Right, 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 of course. Which I don't know if there's actually good, like, population level data on that, but that's certainly the stereotype. What about the Bible? Give me a little bit on the Bible. Yeah. Uh, that, That particular view of the Bible that you were given is what I mean. Right. I think this relates to Howard a little bit, maybe, but... I think for me, I'm thinking in this season of Lent about this idea of return. And for me, like return has a lot to do with getting back to that, that child boy self of mine who loved playing with Legos and listening to the Mm. stories of the Bible. Yeah. Interesting. It's a simple faith, but it's not a simplistic faith. And I kind of want to make a distinction there. Sure. Yeah. Where like simple also has room for imagination for mystery, for, for not knowing things, but, but doesn't get totally like anxious and bent out of shape about it. I feel like simplicity is like, we're going to take all of the unknown and we're going to, we're going to put it into propositional statements and we're going to figure out how to master it and control it. But I think for me, the Bible a lot more is, is about kind of taking my own personal story and like putting it in there like sticking it into the Bible and going, I'm a participant in this drama that's, that's unfolding of stories with people wrestling. You know, that's that word for Israel, right? It means to wrestle with God, like right. literally wrestling with God. And I picture, I picture a little boy, like, you know, playing with God in some, in some ways. And then I'd say for me, I'm a lot more willing to step into like the complexity of the story of Jesus, so the, the the death and resurrection, but really in that middle place, in that like Holy Saturday, if you will, that spot where the remnants of why Jesus died and, and what's wrong in our world and what's wrong in me remain even as I anticipate some greater hope. That's kind of where I'm at is is recognizing that there's so much complexity and paradox even in the Bible and things that I just don't have the answers to. But that's that's the place where I think faith happens is me asking this question, where were you, Jesus, right? Like if Jesus is real, like where were you when some of these things happened to me? Speaking and, of where was Jesus, I want to ask you about 
if you're willing to take a, a look back now with this new lens at the conditions that allowed that abuse to happen to you? And, and is there any way that you think about that, that differently? I'm not sure if this is getting at your question or not, but I, I think that at school now I've gotten such a bigger picture of abuse and trauma. You know, we talk about capital A trauma or capital A abuse and capital T trauma and then lower T and right. And it's just this reality that we all are living in these worlds that don't, that don't go right. Right. And so this isn't like, this isn't like a, like a blame game on, on, on parents and families. It's like, Hey, what are you willing to like, look at the conditions in which you were, in which you were born into and where have they, not if they've failed, but like, where have they failed and what has that cost you and what has that set up for your life and for even the things that you're interested in. And so for me, kind of looking back, it's, it's a life's work, I think, to ask those questions and to engage those questions of like, where was I set up? Where was there harm? Also, where were the sweet moments that, that kind of saved me and, and have made me who I am today? So I don't know. I, I don't know if that's well, I think that's what helpful. you're getting at, but it's some of what I'm, what I'm yeah. thinking about right now. Before we go to Howard's particular questions, just to wrap this up in your section with the title of the episode, is there anything else you want to say about how you came to understand that you have permission to go to therapy and then to pursue and or to pursue therapy as a vocation. The interesting thing that I've discovered, even in thinking about talking to you was how, how much of the permission for me came from, came from sources like actually in the church. So if you look at it, like a church introduced me to biblical counseling, a priest encouraged me to go to regular counseling to, yeah. And then another mentor pastor directed me into the therapist that I've, that I've seen yeah, since. So that's really interesting. I think that's interesting for those of people listening who are like, like me, who grew up in this like evangelical yep. Christian where, where the church de- did carry so much authority in our lives. And sometimes what we need for permission is we need people who carry that weight. And so one yeah. thing I would say is like for any, like maybe pastors out there are listening or whatever to understand that you do hold a lot of weight. And I think that's changing in our culture we're much more suspicious of the church than we've ever been. But I would love it if pastors were like seeing themselves as people who were experts in like, who do I, who do I recommend in my community for my people and not see it necessarily as an affront on their authority or their biblical knowledge, but like, but like go out of your way and, and learn and meet these, these practicing therapists so that you can say to your people, Hey, not only is, is therapy good, but like, here's some people that I love and trust. People ask me this all the time. Like, how do I find a good therapist? And it's like, well, that's a difficult question because you know, most of what a therapist does is in their office and there's not an easy way to test it. You know, you don't, it's not like a surgeon and how many times have they been sued, but how great if local pastors became experts on the local therapists totally. and and especially for their for christians their congregants or their friends you know like my first experience with a therapist he was hostile to my faith he he asked me something to the effect of do you really believe this stuff yeah and i was like this is not gonna work that would be ideal for a pastor to be like totally. oh yeah i know these five people and and my therapist who i see now who i love was uh, my pastor recommended him mm-hmm, to me. Mm-hmm. And so, maybe it's a yeah. good idea for pastors to start that process for them is to yeah. go ahead and see I somebody. Oh like yeah. Themselves, you know, and right. and experience what it is so that 
whatever biases or things that they have still in their own lives and stories might might come out. And I think I just, my whole experience, even some of the confusion about my calling growing up and all this kind of stuff, like we all need people in our lives. And if a counselor does nothing, I, I hope that they can do this, is somebody who can sit with us in a room and help us understand and experience together what the particularities of our story have have brought us and and that's often where like i really believe at this point that to figure out like what you're supposed to do in the world a lot of ways of finding that of exploring that is like where were you most deeply hurt and wounded because that actually might be the place where you have the most energy where you have the most hell no in your heart you know of like well yeah i want to go after this and i know that might be might be particular for for you as well but that's what this podcast is basically it's like i have a lot of fire around uh, unnecessary theological barriers mm-hmm. or you know bible tinged barriers like and i've been i'm on the record about this a lot about my anxiety over end times theology and mm-hmm. how that interplayed with my general anxiety disorder and that was a huge uh, source of pain in my life and mm-hmm. so that's I'm trying to, uh, you know, do whatever I can to, mm-hmm. et cetera. So obviously mm-hmm. I agree with you. Okay. So for Howard, now we got to give Howard the benefit of the doubt. He's going to probably say, okay, guys, look, if someone has been sexually abused, this is probably the kind of thing that someone should go to therapy for. <laughs> yeah. Not fair. Trump card. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's kind of not fair. So can you say why therapy is not just for people with sexual abuse in their history? I think Howard and I might share an assumption that I want to just bring into it, which sure. is I'm making the assumption that everyone in the world has suffered the effects of what most Christians were going to call the fall. Yeah, sin. Right. If you're not a Christian or whatever, and you don't like that language of the fall, all you have to do is simply look around at the struggles of the world. Yeah. And even, not even that, but even in your own in your own life. And I don't think there's ever been a person I've met who doesn't have a belly button, right? Who doesn't yeah. have like depression or anxiety or let alone some some harder like mental disorder kind of kind of things and we just know at this point that our brains and our bodies and our relationships are deeply affected even down to the cellular level with whatever we want to call the trauma of living in the world yeah and so you know i'm not saying that therapy is like the answer to all of these things i'm just saying it's like one helpful way to begin to experience growth and healing in our lives. And yeah, so that makes sense. I also want to want to note that in my story we saw this, right? Where like I, it took me so long to get to a place where I, even I was able to recognize that maybe I needed to. And people people listening and maybe yourself might go, "How did you not know that?" So yeah. now now take that to your own life, okay? Mm. And now go, "What are the things in my own life that I'm like denying are actually a big deal when yeah. in fact they really are?" So Let's establish some common ground. What are some of the things that Howard said in his interview that you think he's right about? When I listened to him, I was thinking about how, and maybe he said it this way, but like how isolated we are, how... It's a real problem in the modern world, yeah. How we're not necessarily seeking each other out for healing. I mean, I really believe that healing happens in the context of relationships. Yeah. So if that's true, like how how are we engaging our church communities or other communities in our lives with with our real problems and our real stories. and It strikes me that there might be a kind of a combination of what Howard said and what you said earlier. It might be true that for the average person, the points of connection, the relationships that do help them heal, that do help them process, ought to be 
their family, their close friends, their, you know, their pastor or whatever. And perhaps there's just so much sin in the world that that doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. And there might be sort of modern forms of sin in terms of we take advantage of the technology to become more disconnected. We take advantage of our wealth to have bigger houses with bigger yards and be further from each other. Mm-hmm. But in the relationship between client and counselor, we mm-hmm. start to see that relationship modeled That's of the exactly kind right. of honest and intimate and transparency that we need with then the people in our yeah. lives. So yeah. perhaps it's, it's to leave not a replacement, but it's an example that we then can practice ourselves. Totally. It, yeah. I, I mean, I, I agree. I, I really do agree. And I, I don't think that the need for therapy or counseling could be erased necessarily. But I do think that if, again, I, I think if the church were being, and this is going to feel pretty judgmental, but like if the church were being the church, I think that there would be less need and more connection and deep knowing of one another that that really is at the heart of what who even who God is and if you believe in trinitarian theology right yeah. so it's like i want both right you know, yeah totally and so. i just i'll just agree that like my experience living in urban areas is that there is a huge mentorship problem mm. we you know the church that uh, you and i used to both attend just loved it but there was just like nobody old i mean there's just almost no one over 55 and tons of people under 40 and like that's not ideal you know like i i I find myself constantly thirsty for an older man who knows the world and has 20 or 30 years on me and it's just hard to find and so that's another element of this kind of this thing that he's right about like these are real problems yeah howard totally seems to mostly think of therapy as quote wise counsel unquote that's not how you see therapy is it it no it's not that's what it sounded like when when i was listening to howard yeah um well and you could forgive him it's in the name counseling it's counsel right i mean like yeah you could be it's understandable that somebody would yeah. think of it that way yeah and maybe that gets at some of why there's uh so much insistence on using the word therapist as opposed to counselor now Interesting. it yeah. seems like counselor is a is a is a term i've seen more recognized or welcome in faith communities and therapist in more like sort of secular communities yeah. and so maybe that's part of maybe that's part of the reason i don't know but it's just not what we're talking about uh, yeah oh I, like yeah if i if, call a mentor on a business decision and i'm like hey josh when you had this problem what did you do that's counsel that's just not what I'm doing in therapy. Yeah. I'm not asking my therapist, what did you do when you came to, like, that's just, it's just a different process. Yeah. You're in the realm of advice. And, you know, I don't know how many of us actually, when we think about it, listen to advice that we're given. I mean, that's not the problem. <laughs> yeah. If the problem was, I just need to listen to some advice. Right. Like, come on. We, we know that's not the human heart. We know that's not like how our behavior and like right. things in our lives that we struggle with. Like, yeah, that's good. That's true. So my my problem is not a lack of wisdom that I have access to in its informational form, right? right. Like I know right. we get sucked into that thinking though. Yeah, sure. Of course. I do too. It is also true that like wonderful therapist doesn't quite have the ring of counselor. How do you respond to the critique that therapy is just a way to get people to blame their parents for everything. That has been a critique of psychotherapy from the jump. I'm sure. But I, I think we all know intuitively that blame in general is like a total dead end. But yeah, we all know 
that blame can be super harmful. I think what I would say about blame too, that's bad is, and why we wouldn't want to be thinking that therapy is about blame is because it's actually taking away agency from people. Right. Right. So you're saying my problems are external to me only and particularly in these people. So part of what we want to do in therapy is we want people to feel what they feel, know what they know and experience a sense of like agency and responsibility for their lives. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, you could imagine a couple of reasons, though, that you would end up with this stereotype. One would be there are probably some lazy therapists who do just get people to blame things. And then and yes. then that catharsis feels really good and people will keep yeah. coming back and keep paying them and they'll recommend them to their friends because they get a, a short term bump in feeling good about themselves. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine a kind of an economy for that. Yeah. And I can imagine like somebody telling you, oh, your mother is bipolar. Um, might in fact give you some sense of relief. Yeah. The, although um, your mother's bipolar is not really blame. It's explanation. It's explanation. And I, that is an explanation is helpful. I found that to be true. Oh, my mother yes. had anxiety disorder. Oh, my grandfather had anxiety disorder. That's not, I'm not blaming them, but like, it is really good to know that I can trace that genetically. That's and a good point. Culturally. That's know? a good point. That's I, explanation. It is explanation. And I think there's, there's room for explanation as well and you're you're speaking to some of that room but i think yeah. what gets called blame oftentimes is an explanation can be similar to this it's it's a way to avoid the actual experience of what it was like for you right so saying your mother just has borderline or or just blaming your well your mother was just a bad mother right mm. I mean, it can give you some sense of safety and explanation, but it doesn't get you into actual therapy, which is like, and what has that meant for your life? And where, where is their grief for that reality? Yeah. And where is their disavowed anger that you need to sort of work through? And I, I think that therapy and any good practice of therapy is not feeling less. It's like feeling more and it's like bringing more into Right. Into the whole person. It's experiencing life to the full, right? We should also... We embrace life, not we, deny life. Yes. I blame my grandfather far more than my mom, <laughs> for instance. <laughs> I think we actually remain, we remain pretty like loyal and bound to, to, to our mm. parents yeah. than we do blame them. And so, like, I guess unless you're able to name what's true, you're not even really... You're not even honoring your parents... Hmm. for for who they are and what they brought you, let alone being able to move into a place where now you can get reconciliation, forgiveness, authentic relating, right? There is this difficulty of like, it is hard to acknowledge ways mm. that we have done things wrong. None of And yet we all, as Christians anyway, we universally affirm that we do do things wrong. Yes. And so even it's like, even if I want to be angry at my kids for blaming me, it's like, aren't they right to at least partly isn't that part of my theology isn't it hard but shouldn't i be willing as a christian to plumb those depths you know like do do i simply say i sin and leave it alone and not and never ask how do i sin right oh nobody's perfect so yeah yeah and i'm not accusing howard of anything i just that strikes me too like that's a difficult thing but it's yeah kind of part of christian theology well, and he said, you know, he said like something about if he heard that his child would go to therapy. That was my next question. Yeah. He, he would be ashamed, like, ashamed at first. Yeah. And on one level, that's just like totally human. Totally. I mean, and yeah. I just kind of want to say, I don't know what it's like to raise a child Me in neither. this world, to love them so much, to make s- as many sacrifices for them as I'm sure Howard 
did, you know. But like you're saying, I think at some point, I would just encourage Howard back to his own tradition that says we all struggle, we're all fallen, we all have lust and anger, <laughs> you know. And so in that sense, if we want to take it the way Jesus does, we're all adulterers and murderers. Like, I mean, that's kind of what he does, right, with that that kind of teaching. And so, of course, Howard has failed and betrayed and harmed his children in ways he knows and doesn't know. But it's also true that Howard is like a remarkably good father, I'm sure, right? In ways he probably actually doesn't fully know, right? Mm, So I I think it's more about can we engage both of those things really fully? If I could counsel Howard, (laughs) you know, it'd be like, wow, what would it be like to go to your to go to your child and say something like, I wonder if we could have a conversation for the ways in which I've maybe harmed you and don't know it. Like, man, now we're getting wow. to the, yeah, this stuff is, yeah. I mean, even what just imagining that, that it's like, Oh yeah, this gets real difficult thinking about my, you know, just thinking about my own parents and yeah. Well, the thing we didn't talk about that I'm just realizing right now is the last thing of attachment, which is repair mm. of rupture. Ah, um, if something s- inevitably gets ruptured, which it does inevitably, in a world. like we yeah. miss each other all the time. Right. But what's key to attachment is, can I come back around and as, and as simple as I'm sorry, Yeah. but like as simple as I missed you there, I harmed you there. How huh. do we get reconnection? That's where the good stuff happens. And, and for instance, not blaming, pa- right. For instance, uh, adults who have a hard time admitting that they're wrong, parents who can never admit that they're wrong, they never get that. R- repairing of rupture right that this is one of the things i'm angry about my grandpa for still who passed away but he never admitted he was wrong to my mom to yeah. us to, you know to my aunts and uncles yeah and like that just kind of ends that just forestalls so much community and so much intimacy mm-hmm. if you can't say you're wrong lurking in the background of this entire conversation oh boy uh, in, in term <laughs> not not your story but the the broader conversation about therapy or no therapy or biblical counseling or what the, you know, isn't the question just like, what does it take to have a godly, healthy, flourishing life? You know, there are all these possible answers to that question. Christian fundamentalism has an answer that you and I would agree is probably too simple and too tidy. Mm -hmm. I would, yeah. Like scientism, sort of like popular naturalist science has an answer, like, but maybe not a deep enough answer because it doesn't really get to flourishing. It only stays at healthy or like late stage consumerist capitalism has a kind of a shitty answer to this question. Like just keep buying. And you know, if you get these Ray-Bans, then, then you'll be <laughs> flourishing and happy. Like, right. You know, right. But there's this deep unanswered question. And, and even if we think that somewhere in the Christian tradition or somewhere in the Bible is the real answer, which I would, uh, I would say is the case. It's like, how do we get to it practically in a fallen world? I mean, isn't that, really what we're trying to answer here with all of this stuff? Mm -hmm. Yeah. One thing I do want to harp on is how like happiness, I don't think is like the goal. And I think that's our contemporary, like sort of, you'll be happiest when you're most, most authentic or something along those lines. Yeah. That, that's a kind of, that's another kind of answer to that question is like just sheer authenticity at all costs or something like that. Right. And that sells a lot of self-help books because it doesn't really require anything of you. All you got to do is like, name things yeah never form any habits never change any behaviors right so you'll so people will always be making millions of dollars a year on the authenticity yeah and there's something about it that i actually love too so it's a part it's a part of whatever the answer is you you do need to name things that are true 
but it, it, it's not the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think we just have a tendency to, t- to attach to, to like one thing and think that that's going to be the thing, right? Like that's such a simple concept, but it, yeah. this is what's happening. This is what happens, I think. And that's going to solve our problems. That's going to give us control. That's going to ultimately make us happy. I think for me on a personal level, I would say my own kind of Christian faith is like, how does my life uniquely reveal death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus? So for me, that's like a starting place of like, where are the ways in which I've experienced death in my own life. Where are the places that I have experienced healing and resurrection? And where are the places where I have been given some level of responsibility and authority, you know, to think about that last category. So on a non like maybe Christian way of talking about it, it's like something like for me, like something like integration where yeah. we're able to pull all of these disparate parts from ourselves and like bring them together into some some form of whole so that we can be we can use the word authentic there but like to embrace the differences of others we have to be able to put those pieces together in our own self yeah and that i mean ultimately i think we're made for relationship like i do think people down you know down to, to every person on this planet wants to know and be known by other people and so that's i mean that's what i would say is kind of an answer to that main question yeah one of the moments in my interview with howard that i really remembered and that you also kind of latched onto was that he seemed to have an underlying assumption that human beings are fairly simple you know maybe even that most things in life are pretty simple and straightforward what did you think of when you heard that section of the interview? If there could be a kind way to like shake somebody, like that's <laughs> I how I was can feeling. Be. Maybe not. I don't think but, so. Like, I guess, I guess what I was wanting is like more engagement. Like, hmm. wait, really? Like it was a perplexity that I had just that quite like what parts of your life or our collective story, even in the United States, like, you know, in the 200 years that we've been here, are you like dissociating from or not or denying somehow that allow you to think that way? Like, I, But it might not even be so insidious as that. I mean, you said earlier that like you recognize that a lot in your dad's worldview, for instance. And, and so perhaps it's like a generational thing where it's like that is a common view in American evangelicalism, especially for people in a certain generational cohort. And like that is kind of the the agreed upon wisdom in that particular subculture. I mean, so there doesn't have to be a lot of active ignoring or something, you know, uh, to, to reach that. Whereas I think our generation is reacting to that and going, hold on, things are a lot more complex. You know, black people, for instance, didn't just decide they wanted their own denominations. Like they weren't allowed to become pastors, you know, like we're, we're, we're interested in causes that maybe our parents' generation weren't as interested in. And so some of that complexity, I don't know. I don't know if I'm doing Howard any favors by explaining it that way or not. I don't know. We'll let Howard say whether or not you are. But I think what I'm realizing is, and this is so true, I think at least in my experiences, and I've I've already linked Howard and you just did it again. I've already linked Howard with my own dad. Yeah. And that's, that's really important because we do that kind of thing all the time. Interesting. So, you know, some of what I just, some of my own reaction to Howard 
is to your dad. I, is what I would want for my, you know, is yeah, what I, I want to go to my dad. I want to just shake him and be like, how? You like, don't want to shake Howard. I mean, uh, like, <laughs> you've never met Howard. You want to shake your dad. I've never met you, Howard. I don't want to shake you. You want to shake um, your dad. Yeah. And I think, you know, on a personal level, like some of going, some of being a, a, a therapist or a counselor is owning the fact that I want to save my parents, right? That I want to save mm. my dad. Wow. And that's not a bad thing. Yeah. That's, that's something to be embraced. That's something to bring into fuller awareness and acceptance so that it doesn't have the power. Like, that's the thing. We yeah. need these things to be brought in so it doesn't have power over I mean, us. It goes without saying that you can't do that. You can't save your dad. Like, you no. can't save him, right? But, but it's good to recognize that that's what you're after. Mm-hmm. That's what you wish you could do, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? So we're going we're gonna to now hear from Howard. I'm going to chat with him, and then we're going to come back to talk with Jonathan about a couple practicalities of finding a therapist and avoiding bad therapists. So thank you guys for making it this far. (laughs) So Howard, welcome back. I want to start by saying thank you because you were willing to come on this show I thought you were quite honest and vulnerable in our first segment. Um, and then you let two 30-somethings dissect your worldview and everything with you out of the room. Obviously, you're now going to have a chance to sort of give your reaction and ma- make any corrections you might want to make to the record. But still, like, that takes a kind of a courage. Um, it's not a normal, everyday thing that we find ourselves doing. And so I just wanted to start by thanking you for your willingness to do this. Sure, Absolutely. You know, having having listened back to our interview and then the the long interview with Jonathan, kind of kind of where's your head at? A um, couple things to start with, and whether I was misunderstood or misstated something, there are a couple things that that jumped out at me. I want to make make clear that when I used the word counseling, there were several times you used counseling and therapy interchangeably. Yes. Um, yeah. I was not just talking about talking to someone. I was okay. talking about using the skills that someone has, whether they've learned it, whether they have gifted with it, to listen and ask questions. And so it was more than just having someone walk in and tell them, give them marching orders. Okay. It seemed to you at some point that maybe we were acting as if uh, you thought it's just a matter of like wise counsel or like good advice, but you you meant more than that. You meant like a real a real genuine listening and, and a skillful listening as well. Cor- correct. Okay. That's good to know. One other thing I, I think, I think we're all as individuals on what I would call original journeys. That being said, I believe it's probably true that most new generations feel like they have better answers than the previous generation. I'm sure it's gotta be true. Yeah, <laughs> so it has to be true. I'd kind of like to give you the shot to kind of let things get rolling. Okay. Well, yeah. So I guess my big question, it, and this was my big question coming out of our original interview, which I think I even mentioned to you just off off mic after we were done. And then I, I brought it up with Jonathan as well. You and I had this exchange um, that went something like you saying, I think, you know, what Jesus wants us to do is pretty simple. And I responded with, well, what if what Jesus calls us to is simple, but human beings are not simple and therefore to get ourselves from point A to point B is complicated. And you responded, you know, basically with like, "Ah, I think it's pretty simple. 
And then that's when Jonathan that did was the shaking the, line. Was, <laughs> yes, that was the other thing yeah. that I wanted to to cut, somewhat clarify. Sure, yeah, let's hear it. And that is in the sense, and if I if I misstated it, then I apologize. But um, in the sense that life is not simple, yeah, and people are not simple. I do believe when it comes to long term effective results, in most cases, it involves. Simple but tough choices. Okay, uh, I think it was Jonathan that said he uh, often lied to his parents. If, right. I'm, if I'm mistaken, tell me. Oh no, he did. Yeah. <laughs> but okay, okay. Now uh, let me let me relay something to you that happened this past weekend to me. Um, I have a very young granddaughter and two not quite as young grandsons. Same family, but talk, they were talking about they had been to the park. And she had climbed up a tree to a certain level. And then her brother dared her to climb higher, which was not a safe height. And I said, oh, and you went up there, huh? And I said, well, what if you had fallen and something horrible happened to you? Whose fault would it have been? And she said, I'm not going to call his name, but she said it would have been fill in the blanks. Yeah. Okay. And that's a very childlike, real example but I think all too often in society, we take those, those answers. And I told her, I said, you know, he would have done wrong. He did wrong in telling you what to, daring you to do this. But the choice to do it was yours. You made the wrong choice. There are rights and wrongs at every point in our lives. And depending on what we choose, those choices may not be easy, but when it comes down to it, most of the, I believe, most of the choices that we make that make our lives better or worse were fairly plain and simple to see. Yeah, I that's think that's. I, mean. I think that's pretty much uh, where we differ on this. I mean, you know, f- for instance, Jonathan's story, and he isn't an, an outlier in a sense. You know, he experienced sexual abuse, and you mm-hmm. know, not everybody does. Although it, it's more people than maybe we like to think, but like you know, that messes with you. And and so for him to go, well, I want to have a healthy sexual marital relationship. Sounds simple, but if you've been abused, maybe not so simple to achieve because of past trauma and how that's messed with your brain. And and, and, and what you're describing there is not a simple situation. Okay. Okay. What I'm saying is the choices along the way that we have to make to direct our lives. He didn't choose to be sexually molested. Right. And, and it was a, it would be a tough choice to share that with someone, but it's it's a it's a choice that is either or you either do or you don't, and there are lots of decisions that we all have to make. I mean, I, I don't want us to get hung up on that because I, I'm not saying life is simple. Sure. I'm not saying I'm not saying the world is simple, but I th- but I do think that many of the choices we make are pretty clear what is right and wrong. Maybe that's what I should have said. Yeah. Okay. And and so then that's kind of where I was jumping in to to say like, yeah, so maybe a lot of the stuff that Christ calls us to is straightforward. There is a a right and a wrong, but we might recognize in our own patterns of behavior. I think about Paul saying, I do not do what I want to do. I do the things I don't want to do. We look back at our patterns and we go, why can't I just do, I know what I want. I can't do it. And perhaps therapy uh, and getting to know ourselves better is a way to go, ah, here are these patterns I'm doing, and it takes someone going to school for five years and having 20 years of experience to help us untangle this 
this knot so that we can follow that path. And I think that is, that's where I'm seeing the divide, if that makes sense. I can, I can see that. Then I would, I would recommend you guys make choices to listen, even when it doesn't fit the pattern of what you want the outcome to be. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let me refer to a couple of comments towards the end yeah. of the conversation okay, between good. you and Jonathan. Um, more than once, um, I was compared to dad. Yeah, which, he was. He's saying which, that you were, your interview yeah. reminded him of his dad. Right. Yeah. And at some point, he wanted to save dad. And I, yeah. what I wanted to say was, what are you saving him from and, and to? You know, what is it you're trying to do for dad? And what I, one of the things I wanted to ask Jonathan is, did you, have you actually recently actually asked your dad to sit down and have a conversation? And maybe he has. I don't know. The other, the other thing that struck me as very odd, almost out of nowhere, was when the both of you kind of came down on the thing of where has Howard been? I actually quoted it. What parts of your life or our collective story, like even in the United States, the 200 years that we have been here, are you dissociating from or denying somehow that allow you to think that way now? And to be clear, to think that things are simple was the, that was the context. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Sure. But that's a pretty heavy question Mm -hmm. when there's no allowance for perspective. Well, but here you have a chance now to uh, answer that. I mean, or, you know, defend yourself uh, against that assertion. Well, I guess I would, I would ask where the assumption even came from. Yeah. Well, I think that, um, not to speak for John, I'll speak for myself and cause I, I, yeah. I resonated with him saying that. Um, yes, you did. and it feels to me like, um, a kind of a worldview that I, I recognize sometimes in people of your generation, yeah. you're of my parents' right. generation that we can boil down just the vast complexity of life and of people's experiences to pretty straightforward stuff. And usually it's stuff that we can find a chapter and verse for in the Bible. And, uh, you know, like I, I mentioned in passing right. in that section, like the history of African-American Christians in America. Right. And if a, if a black Christian asks me, should I keep going to my church or should I change to a black denomination? That's a really complicated thing because those denominations were started because their forebearers weren't allowed to preach because they All were right. black. And so then how, you know, does a person of color move to a church where they can celebrate that history? Do they stay and try and integrate a white church? Just nothing about that is simple, it seems to me. Like, it's just no, a very complicated world that we're no, in. And, and, yeah. and I never said no, of that course not. life was simple. Those aren't yeah. simple things. And just, I mean, even though um, I don't know your or Jonathan's background, I will tell you a little bit of mine. I know we don't have much time, but I grew up in eastern South Carolina, right in the middle of integration. I remember after I I grew up in a very rural community, uh, majority black population, uh, and and I use the word black because that was was acceptable at the time. Um, I remember as a young teenager driving on my way to my little rural country church, painfully asking myself the question, why don't I feel at liberty to stop and invite these three or four young children walking along the road to go with me? Why don't I? And it was all because of color. Yeah, okay. Right. What I'd like to ask some who think 
they are the race warriors of today, the racial reconciliation warriors of today, is who do you think you are? You're not pioneers. My concern on that front, and I know that's not what we're talking about, but that was brought up, so I'm going to explore it a little bit. Sure. My concern on that front is that damage is done rather than help. I go back. There's why I go back to simple actions. Treat my brother the way I want to be treated, the way I want to be treated. If I do that one by one, pretty soon it will be like Dr. King said. It will be the content of the character, the heart. It will be treating each other as equals. I mean, I guess if we did a total socialist society where you've got a top-heavy government that says everybody gets this much money per year and you're all slaves of the government. So we're going to have equality there. But we have equality of opportunity. We have a goal for that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so that's kind of where I'm sure. coming from there. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, we can't – we obviously don't have time for that. But it's it's actually convenient because you basically have just – you're giving a really good example of sort of the worldview – that I, I was assuming that you had. So I was right about this and not in any okay. negative sense. It's an American evangelical individualism. There's an episode about uh, around episode 13, 14, 15 um, about evangelicalism and race on, you have permission mm-hmm. on this show. And if people want to talk or listen more about that, Howard, I'd encourage you to listen to that. Okay. It's exactly what we're talking about. So nicely, we can just link back to that right now. Uh, and so I, I hear you. Uh, I, I think we also would disagree on sort of what's the approach to the fact that there we is would, injustice or whatever. Yeah, we inequity. would definitely disagree. Yeah, and that's and that's fine. Um, I guess yeah. my I guess so. I'll just I'll just close with this. Did our conversation, Jonathan and I's conversation, move the needle for you? And it's okay if it didn't. Did it move the needle for you at all with, in terms of like how you feel about people going to therapy? I think it probably did, but I in the in the sense that. I hope everything I do in every conversation I have, I'm better able to hear the other side. Amen. Okay. Yeah. I encourage you guys to also listen carefully. I mean, obviously you're asking questions, so you're trying to listen, but uh, don't shut down those who may have different opinions from you and don't discount them as not as worthy as your opinions. Sure. Yeah. So. All right. Well, Howard, thank you so much for your time, both times. And the time it took to listen back to this, and you wrote notes, and it's a big commitment. You didn't have to do it. I'm grateful. I appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. I have a question. Yeah. Now, does Jonathan come back also after this? Nope. This is it. That's it. This is it. So yeah. I got the last draw. You get the huh? last okay. word. Yeah. Hey, thanks a lot. God bless, man. The best <laughs> for you. Right. Thank you, Howard. Appreciate it. All right. Bye-bye. So I kind of actually forgot that Jonathan was coming back, uh, but he's coming back only to talk about practicalities. So I wasn't, didn't try to mislead Howard. Jonathan does not get the last word. Howard got the last word. I mean, I guess I kind of get the last word. But anyway, sorry, bad. My bad, Howard. I did that wrong. Um, But before we bring Jonathan back, I did have some thoughts about this final section of chatting with Howard. I just kept thinking about my chat with Michael O. Emerson. Michael talked about all the features that define white evangelicalism, and then Howard basically put on a clinic for us, demonstrating that almost to a T. The main concept from the Emerson interview that I'm interested in is called 
free will, accountable individualism, free will, accountable individualism. We have free will for all our choices. That's the free will part. We are accountable for our choices to God. That's the accountable part. And most everything we find in the world is the sum total of individual choices, not any kinds of systems. That's the individualism part. And this is exactly what Howard was talking about with his granddaughter climbing up the tree. She was free to climb higher or not. She had the free will. She was accountable for her choice. No one else's choice. And even if, and uh, sorry, and it's important to instill this kind of wisdom in children because when they grow up, they will make the world and they will make it entirely with individual choices like this one. This also, I think, partially explains why Howard was so focused on certain choices in people's lives being simple and then drastically affecting their life. Also, his worry, which we didn't spend a lot of time on, that damage is done to the black community when leaders try and call for systemic change is also a page ripped right out of that same playbook. Because since it can only be individuals making choices, that's all any causes can ever be, then any and all calls to focus on systemic problems are simply a way to obfuscate the real causes, which are individual choices, and to detract from the real solution, which is an increasing sense of personal responsibility among black Americans. I also picked up from Howard that the only way to solve systemic problems is for individual people to treat each other the way they want to be treated. Simple, personal, individual actions. And if people do that, one by one, it'll be like Dr. King said, to quote Howard. This is exactly what Emerson was talking about. I won't belabor the point any more than that. This is not an episode on race, but there is an interesting conversation to be had somewhere about the overlap between the way that white evangelicals think about race generally and the way they think about therapy. Anyway, go back and listen to that episode if you haven't. It's episode number 14. It's called You Have Permission to Recognize evangelicalism's racial blind spot. And it is one of my favorite conversations I have literally ever had. I will put a link to that episode in the show notes. Um, So now back to Jonathan for some practical stuff. And then I will bid you adieu. We are at the two hour mark here. This was a long one. Okay, Jonathan, welcome back. To close out here, I've got three practical questions for you. Therapy costs money, mm. and and there's no way we can talk about therapy without talking about money. With insurance, you know, if people have decent insurance, it, it can be as low as 30 or 40 bucks a session. Without insurance, it can be up, up above $100 an hour. I'm, I'm giving Seattle prices here. It's probably cheaper in, in other areas of the country. Mm-hmm. But how do you talk about that? I mean, you you have school debt. I mean, you're in debt to do this. Oh man, come on! You know, you're a, you're like a poor grad student. You're this like is bringing out my passage. life story. It's a rite of passage. It's fine. Uh, you know, how should people think about the fact that yeah, this this is a costly thing. It it does cost a decent amount of money. <laughs> well, the immediate response I have is like, if you don't come, I'll stay poor. No, but um, <laughs> uh, aren't aren't the best things in life like worth money there there is some free there are some free services right for people who are low Um, income and and can prove it and stuff like that yeah our mental health system like all of our systems is is certainly deeply flawed but i think you know uh, all of us are trying to figure out like how how do we get counseling therapy 
to as many people as possible. And yeah, I mean, certainly you can go through your insurance agency and look at kind of what things are covered. You can also, you know, use the World Wide Web to look up counselors. There's something called Good Therapist. .com or something like that. I think that that is a good way to start. You can find somebody, you can maybe have a if you have any friends or pastors who might be able to recommend, then you can go and talk to that therapist or counselor about what insurance they take or don't take. Yeah, right? We're kind of bleeding kind of into that. my second question here, which is where so does what's someone your first start one again? in was money <laughs> and then wh- where does someone start in, finding, in terms of finding a good one? And and remember, like well, try them out and and a lot of People will give you a free first session or a reduced yeah. first session to figure out if you're a good fit. They're not trying to scam you for the most part, right? Mm-hmm. So there, that's another thing that people often don't realize. Yeah, is that you can that you can actually yeah do consultations and yes. sometimes they're twenty minutes or whatever yep. and they're e- cheap or cheap free. Or free and yeah. I would say do a couple of those yeah. unless you're you're just like boom that was it. Yeah. Um. Then then listen to that. Uh, uh, so one thing people can look for is like APA accreditation, right, or, or licensure accreditations for uh yeah sure i mean you, when you're looking for a counselor you you want to see somebody that has done has done their training right of yeah. course i think all uh licensed therapists will will have that either on their website they or will. you can yeah. ask that about them here's where i went to school last question any tips for avoiding bad therapists because there's certainly have got to be some bad ones do we know how to spot them do you know when you're on a bad date yeah Again, listen to yourself. So some um, of it might be that they're a bad therapist, but it also might just be that they're a bad fit for you. Yeah, I think both are true. I'm not going to say there are, there aren't good therapists and bad therapists, but but being able to to go, okay, this might not be a good fit for me, and that doesn't say anything about me specifically, right? That's that's key for a lot of people. And then uh, if you want to work in, mar- in marriage problems, it might be a good idea to go to somebody who's trained in family systems therapy or or emotionally focused therapy. Those would be kind of two big ones for working with couples work. Um, if you want to engage trauma, maybe maybe trying to find a therapist who's got some real experience with with dealing with with trauma. Like think nowadays, about what you want to go for yeah. to some extent. Nowadays most websites for therapists will list all of their areas of expertise. So check out their sites and and find someone who says I work with people that have this. The, whatever the the main thing is maybe that you're wanting to to work through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I hope that's helpful. I'm not yeah, super practical of a guy. That's okay. Well, man, <laughs> I mostly just want to thank you for being willing to be so open. This is a crazy conversation that we've had today. And yeah. uh, I know people will appreciate it and I'm just very thankful. Yeah, I'm thankful too and I hope that any anybody kind of listening that will just feel more permission, more freedom to be able to engage their own life and to to do that with a with a therapist would be would be awesome. I'd I just love how you get the name of the podcast in there so many times. Well, great, you're you very are, on brand. You are like paying me, right? <laughs> if you've made it this far, you deserve a special prize. Thank you to Josh Gilbert for editing my conversation with Jonathan, which was super long. Thanks, dude. He is available for more podcast editing work, and his email is in the show notes. If you want the bonus episodes, or if you want to be a part of the Facebook group, if you want to help me write questions, if you want to ask me questions that I might answer, if you want to vote 
on the questions that I might answer that were asked by fellow patrons on the Facebook group, then you should become a patron. Patreon.com slash Dan Coke. You have permission pod.com. Click become a patron. Starts at five bucks. It goes up from there if you want, but you don't have to. And if money's a problem, email me and we'll work it out. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. This show is meant to be a resource. Please share it and tell me how the conversations go that you have after you share it. Your permission podcast, gmail.com. I think next week is going to be you have permission to stay in your church or denomination. Really interesting conversation I had with a sociologist who mostly studies American Catholicism. Thank you guys for listening, and I'll see you next week.